Well, the word that's, that's driven us kind of for these last few weeks that I want to stick with is this, this word, unstoppable. Now, I, I love that word because it, it carries with it this idea that it is impossible to impede. I love that. That's, that to me is just power. Now, in order to kind of understand it, though, we have to get some, a few things straight on this so we can kind of wrap our minds around it. When I say that the church is unstoppable, it's not that I don't mean that individually, you know, you might be stoppable or that somehow a local church can't be stoppable. But what I mean is that when we talk about God's global universal church that is advancing around the world, when Jesus said that not even hell or Hades can stop it, he meant it. Therefore, like as a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is why I just love this concept of, of being unstoppable. I might feel unstoppable. The church might at times feel like it's, un, it's stoppable. But let me tell you something. In the giant scheme of things, all of those that are a part of God's global work cannot be stopped. And I promise you one day when Jesus finally comes back and returns, this whole world will understand just how unstoppable our king truly is. That's why I love this word. Now, God's universal church, like I said, it can, it can sadly, it can't be stopped, but the, but the local church sadly can be stopped. And this reality is what's caused me to think just as a shepherd of Cornerstone, again, as I'm wrestling through this in my own head, how is it that we can, we as Cornerstone, become a stoppable church? Or let me ask it in the positive. How do we truly become an unstoppable church? Now, I think when you look at this and we go back to, and again, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans 8. We're going to be in, in, in verse 12, kind of working through the first part of it. But I think what we were talking about last week is, is that when we talk about Cornerstone, the way that we can avoid becoming a stoppable church is to maintain this thing that I talked about last week called an exodus mentality. Now in this, we know that, that it's a mentality that Paul, I think, is arguing all throughout the book of Romans that we are, we are a group of people that we are no longer under the slavery of sin. We're no longer, in, in fact, if you look at verse 12, obligated or, or debtors to the flesh. The system of this age that, that's headed by Satan is no longer our master. The world in, in which we know it, as good and as wonderful it is, is something that's passing away. And even though maybe Southern California doesn't feel like your home, let me just tell you this. Even if you move to Texas or Idaho or, or even maybe to Montana or Wyoming, which by the way is someone from there, they don't want you to move there anyways. That's just how they are. That's not our home. I love what he's doing here in this particular text. Our true home is with Christ. And he's, he's laying out our new master. It's in new creation. It's on the new earth. This is the place we're longing to get. And all of our longings to get out of this different place is just a longing actually for the day when Jesus Christ finally comes back. And though this journey, this life that Christ has called us to is going to be difficult. It's going to be filled with danger. I can promise you based upon this particular text that our God will get us safely home. I don't care what. What's going on in the world right now? There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Our God is going to get us home. This is, again, to kind of come back to it, this is the Exodus mentality. I think this is what kind of makes us like the people of Israel. This is why I think this is what Paul's doing with this text. We, we might not be guided by maybe a, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, but there's no doubt about it. We are traveling to a promised land. And the whole thing that Paul's talking about here is we are being led or guided by the Holy Spirit. 
And every one of us, when we look at verse 30, in other words, the ones who God predestined, he will call. And the ones who are called, there's no doubt about it, he will justify. And those whom he's justified are glorified. In other words, there is nothing that can stop our, our God from accomplishing this work inside of our life. And I think that's what's so important here. We're getting there. We're, we're almost there. But the idea is, is we're on, a, on an exodus. And the more that we, I would say this, lose our exodus mentality, we begin to be stoppable. We have to stay in this train of thought as followers of Jesus. So it kind of brings me again back to my question. Okay, if this is true, how can we avoid becoming a stoppable church? Well, if you remember right, I laid out two things, and we're just going to keep kind of talking about these for the next few weeks because I, I want so badly for us as Cornerstone to embrace this Exodus mentality that I, I believe we've been called to, that we've been called not only to this, but to represent God in this world. And one is we've got to remember who we're obligated to. We are no longer, Paul says in verse 12, obligated to the flesh. We're obligated to King Jesus. And through about the middle of 15, he's going to tell us a little about what does that mean. And so we're going to explore that for the next few weeks. But the second thing he lays out there is we got to remember that our father who loves us will get us safely home. That's the point of kind of the middle of 15 to the end of 18. So what I want to do is, is I do, I just want to look at these texts for just the next few weeks. And I think, I believe it's going to set a vision for our local church and where we're trying to get, especially around this idea of gathering this Exodus mentality. And this week, I mean, we are going to try to, as we look down and again, what is this, what is this Exodus understanding that it's talking about? Specifically, when you look at verse 12 and this idea of being a debtor, what it means to be somebody who's been rescued by God from our old master, the flesh, to be one of God's very own, not just anybody, but, but kids or his children. And I think we're going to have to do this as we look at it. We're going to have to do this by looking back at the people of Israel. So keep your, keep your finger in, in Romans 8. If you want to, you can go back with me to Exodus to kind of look at where I think Paul's going here to help us grasp this idea of an Exodus mentality but I think ultimately what he's doing is he's calling us back to that. And when you look at the book of Exodus, and this is what I love about it, its name is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? I mean, it's called Exodus. It was a continuation from the book of Genesis. I think sometimes we forget that, but we know this, that the people of God had, had been taken there. They'd been in Egypt for about 400 years, and we know that God had orchestrated through, you know, no doubt, strange and painful ways for a man named Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, to, to gain a high position within the court of Pharaoh. And Joseph, being guided by God, he gained favor with Pharaoh. And Joseph and his family were, were given the land of Goshen and Egypt to live in. By the time we arrive at Exodus, they've been fruitful and multiplied, which, by the way, kind of beckons us back to Genesis. What were the God's people supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. And it says in there that they had filled the whole land of Goshen. Everything about the story of Joseph, the rise of God's people in Egypt, even through tremendous adversity, is this testimony to the fact that God and therefore his people are unstoppable. We've, we've got to embrace this deep within who we are. You are not just anybody. You're the people of the living God. So the first seven verses of Exodus, they seem so hopeful. I mean, in fact, if this is all you read, you would have been like, dang, this is great. Everything is wonderful. But 
400 years later, this blessing of God that he made towards this, his people, that he would bless them, along comes this new Pharaoh, this kind of archvillain, the initial archvillain of this text, who's a bad master. He's, he's somebody that's there. And ultimately what we know is it makes it so brutally difficult now to live there. Their prominence, their, their numbers that they'd built up during that time, they'd grown immensely as God had blessed them. And the Pharaoh somehow thinking in the back of his head that God's people are stoppable, chose to enslave them. And not only choose to enslave them, but he was even attempting to kill their newborn sons by throwing them into the Nile River in hopes that somehow this is the way that he could suppress them, he could stop them. This situation that he's dealing with here is no doubt a, an obstacle to God's people, but God's people felt stoppable. They, they felt that this master somehow was tying them down. Now, I want us to get this truth, and this is so important because this is where we're going, and I think this is where Cornerstone's going. If, if we're going to be this unstoppable church, the one whom we see as the true master is so important. I don't just mean by concept. I don't just mean as a figure of speech. I mean with the totality of our lives. And if you look back at verse 12, I think this is exactly what Paul's pointing to. He wants us to know we're not debtors anymore. We're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He was making a statement about the one we see as the true master. Now, he'd already posed this question back in chapter six to kind of help us understand it. Let me just read it to you. He said, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul was asking the question that Jesus asked over and over again on this earth. And it's the most important question that we can answer in order to gain this Exodus mentality who is your true master? We know this in Luke 14. Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Let the dead bury the dead. I mean, he just was always talking about this idea. Who is your true master? I think this is the most important question that we can ask as followers of Jesus. Now, for the people of Israel... Pharaoh, their, their present master in, their back, in the back of their heads, he seemed, he seemed so powerful. But listen, the whole point of the book of Exodus is that he was not only pathetic and frail in comparison to God, to Yahweh, he was also vile, he was, he was wicked, he was cruel. In other words, God was showing the contrast. And now all of a sudden, in this group of people, they realize that they're being oppressed. They realize they need to be rescued from God. And in Exodus 2.23, I love this, the Israelites groaned. It's a very similar word that Paul uses when we're in this book of Romans 8. They groaned. Why? Because the slave labor, that's what he says here. They cried out. They needed their true master. Now again, here's the question. Who's your master? Pharaoh, he truly was. He was, he was hideous. But then Moses informs us in verse 24. Look at this. And I, I love this. This is important to our excess mentality. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God heard them in the midst of it. This is so key to us being an Exodus people. He heard his people. 
This truth here is part of what it means to be an Exodus people because it's not, it's not because anything in them, but because they were the ones that were promised to Abraham that would be his children, his offspring. And this group of people were the objects of Yahweh, of God's love, whether they knew it or not, or whether they felt it or not. And they knew deep within them that if they stayed in Egypt, they would die. The, the evil master Pharaoh intended to completely wipe them out to get rid of them. So instead, what did they do? And I love this. God's never afraid to bring it to this point. They just cried out to God, their true master. And God, like he always does, and I love this, he heard his people. We go back to Romans 8. I just want to see, to see this. This truth of death is, is Paul's point by the time you get to 13. He promised the Romans and all of us that if we live according to the flesh, what does he say there? You will die. If you maintain this vile and harsh master of the flesh, this, this one that is working against you, you're going to die. Yet what's so important to this, ex, ex, this exodus mentality is, though, look at this down there. He says, but if by the spirit we put death to the deeds of the body, what happens there? We'll live. The people of Israel understood this. We get this. And if we're going to now truly be the people that God's called us to be, to gather this, this, this exodus mentality, which again, it's this. We're asking the question deeply within us, who's our true master? In fact, I would say this, it's not just a question, it's a question that's a matter of life and death, not just temporal life and death, I'm talking eternal life and death. The one who is in your master, it matters. It's a question we have to ask over and over again in our minds. What's interesting here about the Israelites was that their evil master really wasn't even that, their true master. Sure, he oppressed them. There's no doubt about it. He, he was serving, you know, as this one who was kind of bringing angst and frustration upon them. He was bringing pain to bear upon them. But there was something more insidious that was underneath them that was controlling them. Yahweh was their true master. No doubt he is the true master. But they were looking at the back of our heads thinking, no, Pharaoh is the one who's the one that's suppressing us and keeping them down. But there was something deep inside of them that was so much more insidious that was controlling them. Now, what was it? Well, early in Exodus 5, the people began to complain to Moses, right? We know this, like the whole book of Exodus is one giant complaint. I was counting through there, Exodus, and even into Leviticus. It's like 14 or 15 times the people are just complaining over and over again. In Exodus 5, because of all this talk that Moses was bringing about freedom and worshiping God and a promised land, Pharaoh began to make things absolutely worse for them. And they wanted Moses just to shut up. Which forces a really interesting question was, was Pharaoh really their evil master? Or was he just something outside of them that was stirring actually something in them? Think about it. Even after they'd seen God part the Red Sea, right? One of my favorite movies of all time is when Charlton Heston is Moses and he, he parts the Red Sea knowing that their old master Pharaoh had been destroyed. The army was completely wiped out. And what happens by the time we get to verses 15 and 16? There was no clean food. There was no water. There was nothing at all out there. And what did they do? They just started to complain. If it wasn't Pharaoh, then it was Moses. If it wasn't Moses, then it was God. If it wasn't God, then we've got no water. We've got no food. 
what we learn, I think, is the villain was not outside of them. It's what I talked about last week. The villain, which Paul is going to talk about in Romans 8, is in us. I think it's what Paul argued right back in Romans 3, 9 through 20. is like all people, including us, they were corrupt from the top of their head to the bottom of their, tro- their toes. Their true master was evil. Their true master was harsh. There's no doubt about it whatsoever, but it wasn't an external master. What we start to learn in the book of Exodus as it moves along is that Pharaoh wasn't the archvillain. It was something in them that God has to deal with, which we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. We're going to explore it out. But there was something very important to gaining this this exodus mentality that God is never afraid to allow us to get to this point, to the end of ourselves, to show us our greatest problem. And as he took them out in the wilderness, he showed them that their major problem wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't anything outside of them. Their illegitimate master was actually in them. What this means for us is this during this pandemic. Our greatest problem is not a microscopic virus. It's not a government that's gone wrong. It's it's not an approaching, pending financial crisis. Every obstacle that's in front of this, and I want us to get this across, every obstacle that's in front of us is merely an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power. I mean, think about it. Pharaoh was an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power and that the greatest leader of the time rose and fell by God's own will and decision. He did not come to power because he was so great and God took him out because he's also the one that does that. It was an opportunity for God to show he could take the mightiest military in the world and he can absolutely sweep them away. It was an opportunity to show them with material goods. They could walk through the entire desert for 40 years and still have the same clothes and the same shoes. He could walk with them in such a way that when they were hungry, he could give them manna and quail. When they were thirsty, he could hit a rock. And are you kidding me? Hit a rock and out of it comes water. Their evil master weren't all of these obstacles. Their evil evil master was something that was deep inside of them. And we're going to learn how to fight against that for us to be the unstoppable church. But the master is not external. Our problem right now is not a government. Our problem is not a virus. Our problem is not our neighbor. And even if it's inside your house, your problem is not your spouse or your kids or anything. Your problem is inside of you. And listen. In the same way that God is not afraid to go to any extent to defeat all of the evil that's around us that stands against his people. He's also not afraid to rescue us from the evil that's even inside of us. What's so interesting about this truth is that even in Pharaoh's evil, God had a plan. With the final plague, the the night of Passover, God turned the tables on Pharaoh. Just as Pharaoh sought to kill, right, the the male children of Israel, God decided that he would kill every firstborn within Egypt. And while Pharaoh and all of his people slept that night, the firstborn, God took their life. And while while Pharaoh's people did not escape God's wrath, God provided the means of escape for his people through the blood of a lamb. Sound familiar? 
On the night before they left Egypt, right, they, they sacrificed that young spotless lamb and painted his blood over the doorframe of their house. And when the angel of the Lord came, he passed over them and all the, the males that were inside of those homes were protected. But the ones that were outside of those protective doors, God chose to take them. And every year since, the Jewish people have now come and reenacted this night to, to truly celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But even when, God, when Pharaoh gathered all his army and chased after the Israelites in this some way to come to this final showdown at the Red Sea, the Israelites passed through the waters of the sea safely. But what happened to Pharaoh's army? The greatest army in the world at that time that pursued them in pursued to their own destruction. And this chapter ends with the first song that's ever recorded in the Bible. If you get a chance there, you got to check out Exodus 15. The Lord will reign, they say, forever and ever. The whole song, and again, look at it, is all about how God will save his people from evil. God will redeem them from anything that is in their midst. All who are his are going to make it to the promised land. God will live amongst his people. This mentality is what it looks like when God truly becomes king over his people. This is the mentality. This is what we're talking about, the Exodus mentality. And this is what Paul does in Romans 8. He retells it, except it's something that's so much greater. All who trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, are the people that are promised to Abraham way back in Romans 4. Sure, we might be under a, a better covenant and a different covenant, but, but listen to me. There is no doubt about it that we are in Exodus. And as God's people, we're going to face problems. It's going to be difficult. In verse 17 of chapter 8, we're going to learn that we suffer. And the cool part about this is, is we're in need of being changed. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. We're in need of rescue. And this is what God intends to do. We know that it isn't from Pharaoh, but like Pharaoh, man, the Israelites, are, our great enemy is inside of us. In our case, however, Jesus, this unblemished lamb, comes and by his blood now and the work of him, he passes over us. We're saved and we're set free from the enemy, the flesh. And just like Pharaoh's army, I love this. Oh, the flesh is being, it is, will be, it has been swept away. And one day it will be completely drowned. This time inside of like our isolation, I have learned over and over again that my problem is not external. My problem when it comes to my wife and my kiddos, my problem when it comes to looking at social media, my problem when I look at the news is not my external things. I got to be saved on the inside I gotta be saved by God's grace. I think it's any wonder. Look down at Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God, God went to the fullest extent rescuing us through the death of his son, Jesus. Our God did not quit, isn't quitting, and won't quit on us. And even when things appear to be hopeless, when things appear to be lost in the midst of oppression, loss, plagues, famine, pestilence, viruses, government overreach, Romans 8, 28, for those who love him who are called according to his purpose, he works all things to work together for good. If you are in Christ, you have a good and righteous and compassionate master. You're no longer a slave to the flesh, but instead in a powerful way, you've been freed from the terrible master. You've been made a son and daughter of your true master, God the Father. 
You're now free to serve him with your whole life. It's an exodus mentality, and it begins with this truth. You have an amazing master. Here's what I think our temptation is going to be this week. I mean, just make it really practical and personal for us this morning. We're going to think that because of what happened yesterday with the Ninth Circuit Court and not being able to now worship as God's people, that our problem now is not only our governor, our problem is not only the Ninth Circuit Court, but our problem is outside of us. Those people I just mentioned, their problem also is in them. I couldn't wait to get together with so many of you And I was looking forward to the coming days. I was looking forward to the coming weeks. I was looking forward to the coming months. I know so many have tons of opinions right now, but I couldn't wait for it. Even this morning, I woke up like so thankful that God, our our true God and master, had chosen to open the doors. And by the way, Trump didn't open the doors. Uh, Lawyers didn't open the doors. Only the one that can open the doors is God. In a weird way, I'm thankful. Why? I think in some ways we wanted to get back to a building. We thought if we could just get back to a place, we thought somehow if we could just somehow get to this point that that would rescue and save us, that we would be okay. But if I'm honest with you, being in this room right now, I love all these people that are here. I really do but it's cold, it's kind of lifeless. I don't love it. I love you. I can't wait to be together as a church family whom I love. Don't get me wrong by what I'm saying. I can't wait. And no doubt this building, man, it's been witness to some amazing works of God in many of our lives. But there is no power in this building. It's just a building. The true power, the Holy Spirit is a resonant in us. We are the building, not this place. To think differently, this is what happens is it makes us stoppable. You are not stoppable. You are the church. Your master is not a president. Your master is not a governor. Your master is not a ninth, ninth court, district court, whatever we call it, circuit court. I can't even think what it was. Your master is King Jesus. And for whatever reason, your master has decided that for right now, things aren't going to go perceptively in our way. I got a call this week even asking Are you going to open your church this week from another pastor? I think I know what he was saying in that. And I think maybe even some of you have even even said it. So I'm not trying to belittle or, or do anything like that. But beloved, the church isn't closed. God never closed his church. Buildings might be shut down, but our master cannot be stopped. This is where it's so important. Don't buy into the shtick that our churches are closed. We are members of the unstoppable church that not even Hades or hell can stop. And we will not shut down God's business on this planet as we know it until God calls us home or he comes back and gets us. The church of Jesus Jesus Christ 
Christ has been alive and well and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week from 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost and nothing will stop the church. Don't you believe any differently? Do I want to be together? Yes. Am I going to obey the law of the land? Yes. But even in that, our God decides things they don't. Listen, I love this church. Let me, let me say that again. I love you all. And here's what I want to do. Instead of focusing on what can't happen, I want to show you a video right now. In this video, I never intended it to be something the way I was going to end. I mean, in fact, I didn't know what I was going to end today after I kind of read what took place. But I want to talk about a family who's unstoppable because they are, Romans 8, they're obligated to the true master. They're unstoppable because they're a member of his unstoppable church. And so I'm going to load this up for you, and I just want to give you a small picture of a family that's unstoppable. Hi, my name is Michael Zamora and this is my wife, Kristen. We have been involved in foster care for almost nine years now. And we are here to share our story about uh, our journey as we celebrate foster care awareness. Foster care started for us um, when Chris and I originally were trying to start a family. And um, as it happens to many couples, things kind of don't, don't go as planned. And um, time started to pass and uh, we started to get anxious. And we saw um, modeled in our church just several families that were adopting and fostering children. And I know. actually remember thinking, hearing about the nice wongers without knowing them at all. And I remember thinking, that is so good for them, <laughs> not for us. <laughs> like, I remember thinking that as we were trying to have a baby. Kristen had approached me and brought the question about fostering. And at the time, I listened, but I kind of dismissed the idea. And uh, she asked me to, you know, pray and think about it. And I said I would. Several months went by, and it probably took close to six months till I reapproached her and said, okay, we're re I'm ready. I'll go to an orientation and, and let's check this out and see what it's all about. I think from the moment of that orientation, I think you were all in. You, you hear the brokenness of these kids' stories and you hear that it's not necessarily about you starting a family, but it's about coming into um, their brokenness. And what I love about that is not looking back at the time, I don't think we knew this, but looking back, we were already hurting, right? Like we were already broken. I love how God used our brokenness to step in. So of course we can understand their brokenness at the same time. I think the fear of the unknown is the scariest part, what you don't know. But when you see couples and families go through the what what sounds like the hardest part of fostering, and at the end of it, they're still standing, I think that allows you to see that, yeah, it's, it's gonna be hard, but you, you can do it because they're already doing it. And because of how God enables the church to come alongside these couples and you're able to witness that for years, it made the fear dissipate. Like it, it made it less scary seeing other people do it. 
The first day we um, were able to welcome Milo into our home, I remember just that smile on his face. And we, we have pictures of that first day uh, where I'm holding him, it immediately felt like a fit. I remember um, grabbing him from Wendy, um, who was his first foster mom, and driving him to your work. And I remember he, she had warned me about all of his medical conditions and his um, lungs. And I remember I pulled over like three times on the way to your work just to make sure he was still breathing because I was so scared about all of his medical conditions. I think the biggest thing that I've learned about God in fostering and adopting, which I thought to myself that I was going to um, teach and show and be obedient through this, but God taught me the basics and that feeling of what it is to be adopted by Him. I was never around uh, really anyone that was adopted or fostered uh, growing up. Um, so I didn't quite get it that love that uh, we have for our boys. God taught me through that love what His love is for, for me and how that feels. I got it. Like, I really got, got that feeling. So if I could talk to the apprehensive me of ni nine years ago, I don't know how much I would actually tell her about it, except that just do the next thing that God has asked you to do. Just be obedient for the very next thing. Don't look too far into the future. Don't worry about even the next week or month. But God's called you for today and tomorrow and be faithful in those things. And I would just also tell her these baby stories are already written and not to get caught up in court dates or the uncertainties. God has already made these kids on purpose and for a purpose. And uh, we're just called to be obedient and faithful. And he's got the rest. I'm still telling myself that every day. <laughs> I love that. Just be obedient, be faithful. Cornerstone, our church as a whole, our story's written. I love that. It's a story that's been written by the God of the universe who cannot be stopped. It's a story of a church, though, that I pray that what they read about us is what she just said right now, just obedient, faithful. Just be who you are in Jesus. I'm going to talk more about what this means over the coming weeks because I so badly want us to be the unstoppable church. I know even this morning as I woke up, because I didn't, I didn't hear about it, like I said, till today what took place, my heart just sank. I dove back into the book of Revelation. That's where I always go when I'm like needing to be encouraged again. And I was reminded, our God wins. He wins. And so in the name of the Father, who cannot be stopped, nothing can stop our God, there is no force that can impede him. He is the force. And in the name of the Son, 
who came to this world and what seemed like might be one force that could stand against him, this, this master that we have inside of us that we need to be rescued from. He came and he died and he was buried and he rose again. And in the power now of the Holy Spirit now, not only are we rescued from that, but we can be the people that God intends us to be. Don't worry about circumstances outside of us. We can't control those. I can't change the heart of the king. I can't change the heart of the courts. That's God's job. Cornerstone in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Just be faithful. Just be faithful to the true master, King Jesus.